Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Dory, the kids, and I just came back from a trip to Atlanta where we spent the Thanksgiving holiday with family. Atlanta is a place that both Dory and I are very comfortable. Dory's comfortable because she went to college at Emory, and I'm especially comfortable because for almost seven years I served a congregation in South Georgia, and I would fly into Atlanta every three to four weeks, rent a car, and drive down about two hours to this congregation in a town called Fitzgerald. I did this while I was a student at JTS, and since my first job was not in the congregation and didn't require me to be there on Shabbat, I continued to do this task for much into the beginning years of my rabbinate. There in Fitzgerald, we, uh, we formed some fantastic friendships and relationships, and for that reason, Georgia has always felt like a, a natural place for us, a place that wasn't foreign when we arrived. When we were driving around on Monday and picked up our rental car, I was reminded of a story that I want to share with all of you. When I would normally fly down to Fitzgerald, we lived in Manhattan and we had no car. So renting the car for three days was always a fun and neat experience. And because I did it so often and also rented cars often for work, I regularly got upgraded. So one particular Friday morning, I come down and waiting there in the Hertz aisle with my name, you know, blinking and flashing lights, was this cherry red, super fast sports car. Two-door and I lit up, was so excited. I threw my luggage in the back seat and I zipped out of there. And I started driving down to the synagogue, which is about a two-hour drive. When you get off the highway, you have to drive about 30 minutes on these back rural roads. And something happened to me that never happened before. I tested the car to see how fast it really could go. And at somewhere around 90 miles per hour, I saw a siren. I got pulled over. And I didn't even, I just looked at the officer like, I, I don't even know what to say. And he gave me my very first ticket ever. Never had a ticket before. That was my first ticket. And I was very concerned because I had such a pristine record. Now I'm going to have this ticket on my record with 90 miles per hour in a cherry red sports car with no explanation. And it was going to tarnish if I ever got a car or wanted insurance or any of those other things. So I didn't know what to do. So I asked a friend of mine who's an attorney, he said, you know, you, when you go down there, you can either stop in the office or you can call them and see what they can do. So I pick up the phone and I call the number on the ticket. And answering the phone was an incredibly southern voice and quite winded. And they said, how am I help you? And I said, um, it's a long story, but I was wondering if there's a clerk or someone I could talk to. And they said, I'm the only one here. And I'm not going to do the accent for the rest of the, um, the, rest of the sermon. I said, I'm the only one here. I said, well, I have a problem. My problem is I, I've been driving for quite a few years and I rented a car and I came down to your parts and I, I was driving very fast and I shouldn't have been driving fast and, and I did wrong and I'll pay the ticket. I have no excuse, but I really was hoping that I could find a way to not have the ticket go on my record. Is that, is that possible? Could I, could I do that? And uh, the person responded and said, uh, sure, you can do that. Um, you just write on your ticket, no low contendere and then not a problem. And I said, uh, what, what are you saying? He said, right, no low contendere. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm having trouble understanding you. And they said, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of winded. I just came back from hunting. And I said, hunting? And they said, yeah, hunting. I said, don't you mean hunting? And they said, that's what I just said, hunting. So clearly there was a major communication here. And I was getting more and more frustrated. They were saying these words of no low contendere. What does that mean? And what's going on? 
said, if there's someone higher up I could talk to, they said, you're speaking to him. I said, well, how about the judge? Can I talk to the judge? And he said, you're speaking to the judge. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm totally lost. And he said, I know who you are. You're the rabbi and you go down to Fitzgerald and you were driving too fast in that red car and you got a 90 mile per hour ticket. So I'm telling you, if you pay the fine and write no low contendere, which is Latin, which means no contest, you can just pay the fee and it won't go on your record. You understand? And I felt about this big. I wrote a check out to the town of Fitzgerald and put no low contendere in really big letters on the ticket and sent it in. And sure enough, it did not go on my record. I share that story with you because it's something we all fall in the trap of doing. We make assumptions about people and their backgrounds and their abilities, perhaps even their education, based on all types of little things. And in this case, it was on a particular form of dialect as opposed to who they are or what they're about. Because they said they were hunting instead of hunting, and because they spoke with a southern accent, I had assumed it was some underling who was unable to help me in where it was that I needed help. I thought perhaps someone higher up could speak with better diction, could help me answer the question I needed and get me the results that I was after. But instead, it was I who learned the lesson that teaches us that we shouldn't be judging people by what they wear or what they look like or what their voices are about, but rather what lives in their heart and the content of their character. I share this with you on this Shabbat because I think we all fall into an incredible trap of doing just that when it comes to the story of Jacob and Esau. Many of us paint with a monochromatic brush. We dip it in the black and we dip it in the white and we don't see any of the other colors that might be on the spectrum. And when we look at Jacob and Esau, we paint Jacob in the positive and we paint Esau in the negative. We see Jacob as the favored son, the one who was destined to have the birthright, the one who's in cahoots with his mother and to figures out a way to get around the protocol and the bureaucracy to indeed earn the blessing of his father. And we see Esau as the hunter, the guy out there who might not have the best dialect, who might not have the best capabilities, who seems to come out first but has always fallen victim to what is entitled to him. And we paint him in a darker color. And what I suggest to you that we do isn't fair. That really what we're required to do and our text requires to do and our rabbis requires to do is to look more thoroughly and more carefully at the story of Jacob and Esau and the traits that they had that Hannah and Deed spoke about. The Midrash goes into great detail to speak about values and characteristics that were unique to Esau that it really doesn't spend the time on addressing for almost any other secondary character in the Bible. When I say secondary character, we know, especially in the book of Genesis, that when there are multiple children like Cain and Abel and Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau and even the 13 children that are Jacob's children, that there's always one or perhaps two that seem to be favored. But we shouldn't do that. We learn in the case of Esau, the Midrash goes into great example of telling us that there were very few characters throughout the time of the Bible that showed love, deference, and devotion to one's parents the way that Esau did. As a matter of fact, when he's tricked out of the birthright the second time in the blessing, where was he? He was out hunting, preparing for his father. And when he was tricked the first time with the lentils and he came back starving and famished, 
the Midrash explains he was out providing for his family. That he felt the responsibility as the firstborn and also with the father who had physical differences and needs that he had to go out in the field. He had to find the hunt. He had to prepare what would be the bounty for everyone to partake in. And that if he didn't do that, his family would suffer. The Midrash goes on to explain that the love that Esau had for his father was second to none. Caring, devoted. It was almost a deep bond and a friendship, a kinship that was unlike any other. Meanwhile, as we learn about Jacob, what do we learn about him? We learn that he's conniving. We learn that he works in cahoots with his mother. We learn that he's full of trickery. We know that he treats his brother as one would treat a foe. Not something that's an ideal for us. Not something a standard for others to follow. It is he who sees his hungry brother and doesn't feed him, but rather makes a barter, an agreement, to give him food. It is he who works with his mother and coming up with a costume and an outfit to trick his father who's blind into saying it will look like Esau so that we can trick dad into getting the blessing. And his father even says to him, these are the hands, this is the, the smell of Esau, and this is the outfit of Esau, but the hands and the voice are the voice of my son Jacob. Father sensed something was wrong. But still, we seem to dip our brush into the one color of putting Jacob in the category of good and Esau in the category of bad. After the moment comes where Jacob dresses like Esau and works with Rebekah to get the blessing, Jacob runs. He hides away. Esau comes back and almost something that's made for television, preparing a meal for his father, and his father says, what just happened to me as he starts violently trembling? I was totally tricked. I gave a blessing to somebody else, and now I can't give you a blessing because it will invalidate the other. What do I do? How do I make it go further? So, what do they do, and what happens? They do something very unique. He begs his father, give me a blessing. Find something for me to happen. His father says, while I blessed your brother that he will have the blessing, I pray that one day you will have him by his yoke. Esau is enraged. He's furious. He leaves and he carries a grudge, a strong grudge, and looking after to attack his brother later. Later we read in further partios in the Torah that revenge is about to happen. That Jacob is trembling and full of fear. And when he is, Esau is out to get him. For every one man in Jacob's army, there is five men in Esau's army. And they inch closer and closer to each other. Esau had every right and every opportunity and every reason to exact revenge for what he was tricked out of. But he doesn't do it. At the moment that they come together, instead of lifting his sword, he drops his weapon and the two embrace and they cry. And I can't help but think how lucky Jacob must have felt to feel the compassion of Esau instead of the wrath of Esau. To feel the love that a brother has for another instead of the anger that could have carried on in that grudge. Because had he continued with that anger, Jacob would have been killed. And his children and his entire army and posse would have been annihilated. But instead, Esau shows love and compassion. Still, too often, we dip our brush into the black and paint him and monochrome colors. When I've just exemplified at least three to four different instances through the Midrash and the Torah 
that show qualities and exemplifications of great humanity, compassion, understanding, and opportunities to start over. And meanwhile, Jacob, the thinker, the Torah study, the one we mention at minimally thrice daily in our Amidah, is one who doesn't seem to have the most genuine, the most authentic, the most beloved, and the most righteous relationship with those who are near and dear to him. Too often, in our world that we live in, we drive down the street and we see political posters on people's lawns, and they walk out from their homes, and instantly, we paint them in a particular color because of something that might be in front of their house. Or perhaps it's because of a lapel pin that they wear. Or perhaps it's because of a friend that they keep company with. We paint them in monochrome colors. And it doesn't allow us the opportunity to see the vividness, the opportunity, the multicolors that live in every individual, in every person. We read it in the Mishnah and Pirkei Avot that tells us that we have a responsibility to judge every person meritoriously, to look for the good within everyone. If we don't do that, then we've actually missed what it is to be Jewish. If we just paint people in black and white, then we've lost the entire purpose of what it's about. When I go to the bakery, I always notice there are two kinds of people in line in front of me. Those that like to order the black and white cookie and those that like to order the rainbow sprinkled cookies. While the black and white cookie might be delicious and it kind of uh, became enshrined in history through the work of Jerry Seinfeld, I would argue that Judaism requires us to appreciate the rainbow cookie. It appreciates us and encourages us to look at every color, every sprinkle, every stripe, and realize the opportunities that live within each of them. Because if we only work in monochrome, then we've missed seeing the opportunity in every person. And when we dismiss an individual because of how they align themselves, because of what lapel pin they have on, because what sits on their front lawn, or by their dialect and their accent, and we don't understand where they went to school and what education they have or where they spend their free time, when we do that, then we've done a disservice to what it is that the Torah teaches us and the essence of being Jewish. When we dismiss Esau as a bad guy and Jacob as the good guy, then we've missed what the Torah has to tell us. Just as Hannah said so eloquently, the Torah reminds us that every person, every character, has traits we should follow and traits we can learn not to follow. And that is our responsibility. I pray that on this Shabbat, we remember that we judge people not on the words that come out of their mouth through accent, but the intent of those words. Not on the posters that might be on their front lawn, but on the values and the homes that live behind those posters. Not on the lapel pin that they wear, being an elephant or a donkey, but on the heart that's underneath that lapel pin. I pray that if we can look at those traits in people, then we can do what the Mishnah teaches us and find the good in everyone. And by doing so, we can really unearth the beauty of the Torah and the beauty in each and every person. Amen and Shabbat Shalom. We continue our